earlier this summer while our family was on vacation in Jacksonville, Florida. I stopped at an intersection and saw the following side on the sign on the left side of the road with this light beaming in my eye. It was a light shining from a sign. The sign read this, quote, If laziness was an Olympic sport, I would come in fourth just so I wouldn't have to walk up to the podium. Friends, in your own words, how would you define laziness? Well, that's not a rhetorical question. Look in your worship guide. We've got four pages of sermon notes. I want for the next minute, don't use all your notes, then you won't have any place to write. For the next minute, I want you to write words, descriptions, phrases. If you're so bold, write someone's name or draw a face of them. When you think of lazy, what comes to mind? So write that down in your worship guide. I'm going to give you about a minute. See some of you guarding your paper. What comes to your mind when you think of lazy? I hope you got a few things to look at. Uh, I actually asked this question recently to a group of men in our church. I'm going to share a sample of responses they gave to me. And I added some to expand upon those phrases and definitions. And I encourage you to write some of these down. Maybe add to your own list, write them down, and then we're going to examine them in light of what the scriptures say. So how would you define a lazy person? Lazy people tend to move very slowly. They move through life in slow motion. They are rarely in a hurry, and it's not because they're careful or cautious either. It's because they lack any sense of urgency. What would feel like checking off boxes to accomplish one day of tasks for diligent people is more like checking off a lifetime of bucket list for a lazy person. Nothing is ever all that important to be aggressive about or to be get going about. They might have dreams, ideas, or things they want to do, but being efficient with time to fulfill those goals is not on the forefront of their minds. The need for speed is totally foreign to them. Think of the person driving in front of you going 25 miles per hour under the speed limit in the left lane. And it's obvious they don't know where they're going. That's the idea here. Except this is the way someone operates in life virtually all the time. Lazy people tend to procrastinate. Later, later, later is their first response to most tasks that are pushed their way. Why do today what you can do 
tomorrow. It's their personal mission statement in life. Lazy people tend to lack punctuality. And with that, they show a lack of respect for others who did come on time. Time is always on their side and on their dime. Their time is the only time that seems to matter. At least that's what their actions seem to show. And really, if you think about a lack of punctuality as a pattern of life, it's really just showing pride and selfishness, an inflated self-importance, that your time is the only one that matters. Uh, Friends, an unbroken pattern of punctuality could certainly be a sign of laziness. Lazy people tend to also be effortless. They have no drive, no motivation, no gumption, no enthusiasm about doing really anything in life. They are the essence of being a bump on a log. They are the people you find yourself frequently telling, don't just stand there, do something. Or maybe that's what we keep finding others tell us lately. Lazy people tend to let things pile up all around them. They lack discipline and focus for doing anything worthwhile for any length of time. And they also have a lack of discernment between what I want to do versus what I need to do first. They get those priorities backwards. The only thing organized about their life is that they have a lot of unfinished business around them, and they don't seem to be showing any urgency to attend to that unfinished business. Lazy people are generally an excuse maker. They always say they're busy, but they rarely seem productive, effective, or fruitful in the areas of life that matter the most. When you ask them, hey, did you, did you ever fill in the blank? It seems every time you ask them, they give another excuse, another lame reason, another cop-out for basically doing nothing. Lazy people are therefore not dependable people. They typically don't last very long in jobs where work reviews are mandated or when deadlines are a high priority. Lazy people also are typically chronic complainers about the work in front of them. They are the Monday work doom and gloom crowd. They tend not to be excited about the work God has given them, and they tend not to be submissive and humble to authority, especially authority that challenges their laziness. Mediocrity is their goal. Doing shoddy or sloppy work is what they're known for. Doing the bare minimum, just doing enough to scrape by, never going beyond the call of duty. They overpromise but underdeliver, and for the most part, they just don't care. Lazy people also tend to be commitment phobes. They start something but don't finish it. They buy the gym membership but never go. They sign up for the Bible study, but rarely come. They simply bounce around all the time from one thing to the next, typically quitting when things get hard. If perseverance is a long obedience in the same direction, then half-hearted obedience in short stints is what marks the lazy person. Lazy people tend to be passive, too. Not wanting to deal with people or projects that 
force them to exert much energy, whether mental or physical. And they're always passing the buck to others, causing others to carry twice the amount of weight. Lazy people are in various ways irresponsible people. Others look to them to step up and help out, but they rarely take initiative. They look for people who can be easily manipulated to help them all the time. And they manipulate people to come to their rescue all the time instead of learning to be independent and take personal responsibility. Lastly, lazy people tend to infect their sluggish attitude in others. Sluggishness spreads from them to others like a virus. Lazy people tend to bring others down with them. Lazy people tend to associate with others who will accommodate and normalize and tolerate their laziness. It's a misery loves company mentality. Lazy people tend to douse out any spark of zeal, enthusiasm, excitement, or motivation on a team, working in a job, as members serving in a church, or even with a family that they live with day in and day out. Instead of a commitment to excellence, lazy people have a commitment to indifference, apathy, and a commitment to just go through the motions. Friends, taking all those descriptions in mind, would you consider yourself to be a lazy person? Maybe you consider yourself hardworking in some areas of your life, but there are some significant areas of your life that as these descriptions are coming to mind, you know right now, kind of hands up, surrender, I'm lazy. Fellow Christian, have you ever stopped and wondered what God thinks of laziness and what he thinks of hard work? Well done. Friends, have you ever made the connection in Scripture between our work and our worship to God. If you have a copy of God's Word, please open your Bibles to the book of Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 6. If you're using one of the chair Bibles provided or pew Bibles provided, you can find that on page 306. Proverbs chapter 6. Two weeks ago, we began a sermon series in the book of Proverbs. The first week, we looked not only at the background and context of Proverbs, But we focused on the first and most important foundation for how to become wise in the eyes of God. Proverbs 1.7 is that verse which both gives us the first and most important foundation, but it also sets the stage for how we apply and understand the rest of the book of Proverbs. So listen again, Proverbs 1 verse 7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Friends, we cannot read the book of Proverbs until we get that verse first nailed down in our hearts, fearing the Lord. 
And then last week, we began to look at another common theme or topic spoken about in the Proverbs, and that was on the topic of the dangerous allure of adultery, how must we must watch out for it, we must beware of it, we must heed God's warnings and wisdom so that we don't fall in that slippery and deceitful trap. As Proverbs 5.21 informed us, for a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his paths. Well, this morning we're going to continue our study in the book of Proverbs on another very common theme that is found all throughout this book, and that is the topic of laziness. Friends, I think this is probably one of the most unspoken, hush-hush, no-one-talk-about sins in the church. And so, friends, because we're a church that loves Jesus, because we're a church that wants to follow Jesus, we're going to teach everything the inspired, sacred writings of the Word of God Teach us about all of life, including laziness. And friends, it's not just laziness we're staring at. If we fear the Lord this morning, we must understand God's calling on our lives to commend the gospel, to show off what Jesus means to us through our work ethics in the world he has made. In light of that topic, I'm going to offer two main ideas that we're going to tease out, draw out, and expand upon throughout the whole sermon. I'll repeat them a few times. Big idea number one. Lazy people make rest their God and work their enemy. Lazy people make rest their God and work their enemy. Big idea number two. The reward for hard work that is well done is enjoyable rest without regret. The reward for hard work that is well done is enjoyable rest without regret. Look with me now, starting at Proverbs 6, verses 6 to 11. Go to the ant, O sluggard, consider her ways and be wise. Without having any chief officer or ruler, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. This is God's word. Two times in the book of Proverbs, we're given instructions to learn how to work from ants. Ants of all things. Teeny weeny, snap and bite you sometimes. Ants, not from taking a college course, not from watching Chip and Joanna Gaines remodel a home, not from getting a job at Home Depot. No, we're told from the Proverbs, from the library of wisdom on how to live skillfully with productivity by watching a reality show with pen and paper in hand on ants. 
We see that there in Proverbs 6, verse 6. Did you see that? Go. Stop what you're doing. Stop what you're listening to. Go to the ant, oh sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise. Listen, friends, we're being called to watch an ant. Stare at an ant. To some degree, I know it sounds weird, stalk an ant. And as we do, you and I will get our first course of obtaining our God-fearing work ethic 101 class. The second occurrence is in Proverbs 30, where the ant is listed as the first of four animals who are hardworking, but who are surprisingly small, yet exceedingly wise. Proverbs 30, 24 and 25. Four things on earth are small, but they are exceedingly wise. Verse 25, the ants are a people not strong, yet they provide their food in summer. Here in Proverbs 6 and in Proverbs 30, then what is it about the ant that we are to be instructed by in order to be wise? Remember what he says, we are commanded to consider her ways, pay attention to her path so that we might be wise. Now remember, being wise is not simply a bunch of head knowledge. There's that 18-inch heart disease. I kind of know what I ought to do, but I never do it. No, that's a fool. A wise person knows the right answers. A wise person listens to God who gives the right answers and then applies it to our lives. Here in Proverbs 6, we're given a sneak peek, and it's a humbling and surprising sneak peek of what it looks like to be skillful in applying a God-fearing work ethic as we live in God's world. So what is it we're supposed to imitate about this itsy-bitsy, teeny-weeny, insignificant animal called an ant? Well, verse 6 indicates the ant is a self-starter. She's self-motivated without having to be constantly whipped into shape constantly supervised, coerced, coaxed, or have someone looking over their shoulder nonstop every second, every minute, every hour of the day. No, the ant does the opposite. The ant takes initiative. The ant takes initiative to stay focused on the job at hand, and she gets the job done. I know the ant is also looking for work to do. The ant's not even standing there and sitting. She's not waiting for work to just fall into her lap. Uh, The ant's a go-getter. She's a go-getter when she needs to be. And once she finds work to do, she commits to getting the work done. Did you notice what it says in verse 7 and 8? Without having any chief, any manager, any security cameras, Any officer, any ruler, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. And not only is the ant motivated to work without a boss watching over them all the time, but just to say it plainly, the ant works hard. The ant's not loafing. The ant's not wasting time. She's preparing her bread. She's gathering her bread. She's moving forward. She's lifting, maneuvering, carrying, delivering, and storing up. She's being productive. Friends, do you have anyone in your life right now 
that models this ant-like work ethic? Productive. They just get the job done. They take initiative. They don't have to be babysat every second of the day. They're mobile. They're constantly on the lookout on how to use their time well every day God gives them. Friends, if you know anyone remotely close to that, thank God for them. God's given them as a gift to you to imitate. God's given them a gift to me to imitate. I grew up with a dad who worked really hard. I don't want to imitate everything my dad did in his work ethics, but if there's any good that comes out of me as a man providing for my family, I do owe some of that to my father. Or even as a pastor, some of the pastors I prayed for this morning, Brooks Kale from Savannah, Georgia, Mark Dever from Capitol Hill, I could name a few other pastors. Each of those men have shown me to lesser and greater degrees what it looks like to be a faithful, diligent steward as a pastor. Friends, whoever that is for you, whether it's a mom or a dad, uh, your boss, or maybe one of those employees that have been working for you for years and years, a colleague you sit by at lunch, friends, encourage them. Tell them you are inspired, convicted, to be a better worker for the glory of God as a result of knowing them. Friends, those are gifts that God puts in our path. Those ant-like people, not because they're small, but because they're productive and they get the job done. And notice also the ant has her eyes wide open to what will meet her need. The ant needs to do what? She needs to eat. <laughs> That's the whole point. She needs bread, which means that physical hunger, the growling of our stomachs, the emptiness in our refrigerators, the number of mouths to feed around the table is one glorious God-given motivation to work hard. We got to eat. Proverbs 16, 26 is a great text when you have no motivation to work on Monday. Here's at least one to put the foot on the runner's block to get going. Proverbs 16, 26, a worker's appetite works for him. His mouth urges him on. I work because I got to eat. Amen? I like the common sense, right in your face, inspired word of God. The ant is not only a self-starter and takes initiative. The ant not only is hardworking and works hard in order to eat, but the ant also has foresight to know when important opportunities are in front of her. And she seizes them. In other words, the ant isn't letting her life pass her by. She's not a beach bum. She's not the person sitting there twiddling their fingers at the bus stop, not paying any attention, and then missing the bus ride. She's not the person falling asleep at the airport when, whoa, hello, the plane arrives in five minutes. No, she's got a good grasp on the times of which she lives. The ant understands something that you and I often forget, which is really a rebuke, because we have much bigger brains than an ant. 
The ant understands the brevity of time and its appointed seasons, and she's very wise in how she uses those seasons. As Solomon reminds us in Ecclesiastes 3, verses 1 and 2, for everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted. Listen, the ant knows they can't control the weather. Just like us, you and I can't make summer get up out of here any quicker and for the fall to get here. Ready for the fall? Do you like this? Because you need to be. It's, it's wonderful when the seasons change, but even as much as we anticipate the next season, we can't control the weather, we can't control the season, we are at the prerogative and decision of God. But you see this ant, whether it's the summer or the winter, whether it's going out to the field to grab the food or storing it up and eating in the winter when there's no food to be found, she responds appropriately. She's a woman. It's an ant, a boy, a girl, whatever, who knows the times of which she lives. She responds with diligence and hard work. Friends, the ant is a challenging example, right? This ant redeems the time, as Paul tells Christians to do in Ephesians 5, 16. You know what the opposite of redeeming the time is? Wasting it. Throwing it in the trash. Letting it slip through your fingers. Well, but how many of us this morning would be quick to admit how many precious hours, how many important opportunities, how many years of productivity you and I have wasted simply because we did not spend time the way we should have. Time once spent cannot be regained. As John Blanchard once said, to waste time is to squander a gift from God. Those who understand the weight of the preciousness of time will not let the time slip away like sand between their fingers. May God give each one of us a keen awareness of the opportunities he puts in front of us, whether for our physical well-being, financial well-being, or spiritual well-being. Richard Baxter once said, oh, spend your time as you would hear of it in the judgment. In other words, right now, think about that day. Because that day, the day we give an account of our life before King Jesus, will inform how we should be living today. Back to Proverbs 6. The ant has foresight. She considers both her present and her future all at once. She's neither living in the future nor is she fixated on the here and now. And friends, we're called to do the same. Uh, To all my high school students as well as college students, or maybe someday you will be in those situations, this is an especially important word of wisdom for you. You need to study hard and stay focused on the next class, the next assignment, or the next project. Because if you don't, you won't pass, and you'll have to retake the whole grade, and it's going to mess up your GPA, and it just causes a lot of problems. 
Yet at the same time, students, you must also begin to think about the future, well beyond the next class. We're going after high school, perhaps even after college. That might mean working a summer internship or an apprenticeship right now to gain experience in a field you want to get into later. That's a mark of wisdom. And that might mean calling employers of successful businesses that you respect and want to work for one day. Set up a phone call. Set up a lunch. Begin considering your future by doing the legwork now. Now, This principle is also true for those of us who work hourly jobs. Perhaps your wages ebb and flow from month to month. Some weeks you're working 40 to 55 hours. Others you're working 20, 25 In those heavier work weeks, be thoughtful how to save and set aside that extra income. Because when the leaner weeks come, and they're going to come, you're going to need that extra income. When that boss says there are opportunities to work overtime, that short-term sacrifice could be God's way of providing for leaner times later. But here in Proverbs 6, We're not just given a positive reason to imitate the ant. (laughs) The ant also serves as a mic drop rebuke, a gut punch correction to all of us that the Bible may describe in one degree or another as a sluggard. He says in verse 6, go to the ant Oh, sluggard. And then again, verse 9. How long will you lie there, oh, sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber, and want like an armed man. Now, what is a sluggard? We don't usually, usually use those words unless we've picked it up in the Bible, or maybe we sit around and read dictionaries all day. I don't know. But the word doesn't really sound all that flattering. I mean, imagine coming into work on Monday and your boss says, hey, I got you some more business cards made. I I put them in a box on your desk and you're getting so excited. It's your first business card ever. You pop open the box and right next to your name, it says a professional sluggard. Well, friends, that's not exactly a job promotion. The word means indolent. Someone wanting to avoid activity, or exertion. It's a constant loafer, an attitude that is lackadaisical, or a term that we might be more familiar with, sluggish. This sluggishness isn't how we feel like on a rainy day or a cloudy day, and we just want to eat soup and put on a blanket, lay on the couch. not talking about that. This isn't feeling tired after a long day working outside in the heat and you need to take a nap. This isn't speaking about someone who has legitimate physical sickness that makes them feel lethargic. This isn't speaking about the lack of energy that does come with aging and getting older. No, a sluggard is someone whose bed is their altar. A sluggard is someone whose bedroom or the living room recliner is their sanctuary. 
A sluggard is someone who is made lying around, sleeping excessively, being addicted to TV or video games, or scrolling on their phones, being a couch potato as a lifestyle. In other words, lazy people make rest their God and work their enemy. A British author and pastor of the 20th century by the name of Alan Redpath used to talk to young people about the vital importance of what he called blanket victory. He was referring not to some strategy for overall success, but to the necessity of getting out of bed at a reasonable time in the morning to pursue the business of the day. If a young person could not get victory over his blankets, it was unlikely he would be self-controlled in many other areas of his life. Friends, that's the main issue going on here. The sluggard has resigned itself, himself or herself, to being day by day, week by week, year by year, a loser. Yes, the Bible would say some strong terms in this regard. A loser when it comes to gaining victory over the blanket. Friends, how are you doing these days? How am I doing these days? with having victory over the blanket. Do you see each day as an opportunistic gift from God to redeem and use for him? Or do you resign to hitting the snooze button again and again and again as a way of life? Here in Proverbs 6 and other Proverbs, we'll see this stark contrast between the hand of the diligent, which characterizes those who fear God, and the hand that is slack or slothful in their work. So if you would, hold your place in Proverbs 6. We're going to be flipping around a little bit. Just want you to see some of this amplified. Turn to Proverbs 10. Proverbs 10. Look at me at Proverbs 10, verses 4 and 5. Proverbs 10, verse 4. A slack hand causes poverty, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. He who gathers in summer is a prudent son, but he who sleeps in harvest is a son who brings shame. Proverbs 18, 9 similarly says, Whoever is slack in his work is a brother to him who destroys. The key word there is slack. And it can be translated in the original Hebrew as slothful. It can mean to be false, guile, idle, deceit, treachery, slack, slothful. We've, always used, we've all used this term before too, right? Or you've had it said about you. That student is slacking off. Teachers, have you had to say that already in the first week? That new student over there, slacking off. That new employee is slacking off on the job. But interestingly, the word for slackness is used to describe the result of being deceitful. Pretense. It's the idea of someone who does their job half-heartedly. They cut corners. They portray themselves as having worked hard and finished the job, but they really didn't. 
The one with the slack hand does not care about the quality or of his or her work, but just the perception of a job well done. Uh, kids, when your parents tell you to clean the room, do you clean it just like your mom and dad tells you to clean it? Cora says yes. I'll ask mom at the door later. Uh, let me just have a little Pastor Blake confession time. When I was, yeah, yay tall, it talked really high. And my mom and dad told me to clean the room. You know what I was tempted to do? I was say, no problem. And I would somehow find most of my stuff under the bed and make sure the blanket was not tucked under the mattress, but covering down to the floor. Now, guys, let me just go ahead and give you a little secret. Don't do that. They're going to find out. They're going to look under the bed. It's the pretense of a well-cleaned room, but that's not a clean room. That's being deceitful. That's what the idea here is a slack hand. In the cleaning industry, when I worked in business as a manager and VP over a commercial cleaning business, uh, it was nothing for me to every night come across some guile and deceit amongst my employees. The air fresheners would be sprayed, the paper towels would be replenished, the toilet paper, the mopping of the floor, it would look like, it would smell like a job well done. But I knew all the secrets. I knew where to look. So let me just go ahead and tell you, if you want to know if a bathroom in a public place is legitimately clean, look on the top of the stall petitions. Now, if you've got a white glove, you can do this. If you're not, I would not do it. But if you cake up about an inch and a half worth of dust, that room, that bathroom did not get clean like it should have been. And then if you look behind the toilet, now you're getting an image. Behind the toilet, you know, you moms and dads, you know what I'm talking about. You're going to look behind. Lift that trash can up. Lift that lid up. Uh-uh. So I'm taking pictures. And let's just say Pastor Blake was learning how to pastor way before he became a pastor. A lot of showing pictures, cleaning myself and having some work ethic conversations with people who worked under me. The proverb here expands, though, on this slack hand, and he shows the dismal consequences of a half-done job. He says it leads to poverty. It leads to those who sleep when they shouldn't sleep. Friends, if people have to go behind you and I to do the job, then we're not worth employing. If people have to do the job for us because we didn't do it right the first time, because we're cutting corners, friends, we're going to end up spending more money on supplies and resources because we didn't do it right the first time. Friends, the slack hand misses opportunities. The slack hand cuts corners. Friends, if we rest too much, it will soon be too late. Proverbs 20, verse 4, the slugger does not plow in the autumn. He will seek at harvest and have nothing. Look at Proverbs 10, 26. 10, 26, like vinegar to the teeth and smoke to the eyes, so is the slugger to those who send him. If you're an employer in your job or you're a homeowner looking for someone to work on your house or in your house, it is wise to look for recommendations. It is wise to get referrals. Because if you find out that company or that person has a history of laziness, cutting corners, 
doing shoddy work, you and I are going to be the ones who pay for it in the long run. And the key idea of this proverb is that it's going to be painful. It's going to hurt the wallet. It's going to hurt the eyes. It's going to be unattractive. They're going to become repulsive to us. Look over at Proverbs 12. Proverbs 12. Proverbs 12, 24. The hand of the diligent will rule, while the sloth will be put to forced labor. Proverbs 12, 27. Whoever is slothful will not roast his game, but the diligent man will get precious wealth. The slothful here refuses to be responsible. The diligent instead reap reward. The slothful start something, but don't finish it. They have their game, but they won't cook it. They won't roast it. They let their game spoil. The diligent instead look to finish what they set out to accomplish. The slothful are known as quitters. The diligent are known as finishers. The slothful start strong, but finish poorly. The diligent start resolved and finish strong. The diligent, generally speaking, generally speaking, will be rewarded. They'll gain the promotion. They'll get the award. They'll be given a quote-unquote bigger platform. While the slothful will be put to forced labor. Sometimes they'll stay at the bottom of the totem pole indefinitely, all because they lacked hard work and diligence. Look over at Proverbs 13. Proverbs 13. Proverbs 13, verse 4. The soul of the sluggard craves and gets nothing, while the soul of the diligent is richly supplied. The sluggard has an insatiable appetite. That hunger and that craving, though, never leads to action. The sluggard remains discontent, full of longing, but always lacking, dreaming, but never doing, greedy in their hearts, but never doing the hard work to earn that reward. That's why one of the most rewarding things in life is working hard, seeing the fruits of your labors, and being dead tired when you go to bed. Ecclesiastes 5, verse 12 says, Sweet is the sleep of a laborer. What does it mean to be diligent? If that's the opposite of the slothful, it means to be incisive, sharp. It speaks of work ethics that are intelligently and analytically being determined, focused, eager to work with clear thinking and towards a clear direction. In fact, did you know one of the qualifications of a pastor teacher is that he must be this before his flock? A pastor teacher, though a sinner, though being sanctified, will not have all the gifts in the world. A pastor teacher, as an example to his flock, must be diligent in his studies of the word. Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.15, do your best, or some translations say, be diligent in. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. The word rightly handling, literally in the Greek, means cutting it straight. 
Paul would have had his tent-making profession that he used from time to time in mind, cutting those edges, crafting those tents. That was an imagery to tell Timothy, son, when you handle the word, you can't be sloppy. When you're shepherding Christ's sheep, you can't be careless. This is not a floor you're mopping. This is not a tent you're making. These are souls. One of the greatest indictments on a church is that they hire a lazy pastor and they're okay with it. Ministers who are going to be worth your time to listen to pour over hours and hours and hours of study and prayer, rightly handling, cutting it straight so that the flock is fed, the pastor is fed, and the church is built up and mature. Friends, pray for me not to grow weary or tired in being diligent, being determined to be a workman who has no need to be ashamed, rightly cutting or handling the truth. Pray that would be true for me and the elders. Pray that would be true for anyone in this church. Turn over to Proverbs 14. Proverbs 14. Proverbs 14, 23. In all toil there is profit, but mere talk tends only to poverty. Uh, Really just simple here. Talk is cheap. Hard work pays off. The difference between a dream versus a plan is the difference between thoughts and actions. Dreams stay in our heads, but they are merely just talked about. Plans get put to practice and diligent effort is put forward. Proverbs 15, turn over to Proverbs 15, verse 19. 15, 19, the way of the sluggard is like a hedge of thorns, but the path of the upright is a level highway. The direction and life decisions for the sluggard is painful and dangerous. You don't want to go near them. You don't want to hire them. You don't want to be around them. You don't want to be friends with them. It's going to lead towards a path that is painful like a hedge of thorns. And the contrast is that the upright, those who fear God, those who trust not in their own wisdom but lean on the Lord's wisdom, and the Lord will lead them down straight paths, level highways. Friends, the Proverbs are gut-punching honest about an unspoken thing we often call a personality trait. I want you to listen carefully to the following Proverbs in rapid fire as we draw this to repentance and hope. Proverbs 19.15, slothfulness cast into a deep sleep and an idle person will suffer hunger. Proverbs 19.24, the sluggard buries his hand in the dish and will not even bring it back to his mouth. He is so pathetically useless, he doesn't even have energy to enjoy some of life's best gifts. Proverbs 21, 25 and 26, the desire of the sluggard kills him for his hands refuse to labor. All day long he craves and craves, but the righteous gives and does not hold back. In other words, the sluggard hates to work, loves to beg, is greedy and not generous. Proverbs twenty-two thirteen. this is always a comical one. The sluggard says there is a lion outside. I shall be killed in the streets, kids, if you pull that. Last time I checked, we don't have any running lions down Rogers, okay? 
The sluggard is excuse-ridden. He's an excuse factory. Every chore, every job, every task he's given, he ping-pongs back with an irrational fear. And then we see even a more distressing picture of the sluggard in Proverbs 24. Proverbs 24, 30 to 34, I pass by the field of a sluggard, by the vineyard of a man lacking sense. And behold, it was all overgrown with thorns. The ground was covered with nettles and its stone wall was broken down. Then I saw and considered it. I looked and received instruction, a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. The sluggard has let everything go. His field, his yard, his fence, his property, everything. It looks like an abandoned house ransacked with animals and yet there's someone living there. The sluggard. And sadly, there are some churches today that they keep their facilities looking the same. The outside of a church building isn't the most important thing about a church. The people, the doctrine, and the community is. But the architecture, the orderliness, the care and maintenance of a church, they are telling the community something about its members and its ministry. Members of CCBC, thank you. Thank you for your hard work these last three years, for all the work on the grounds and the upkeep on the outside, whether that's cutting grass, cutting branches, landscaping, taking out trash, cleaning these facilities week in and week out, setting up chairs and pews, everything that's been required to keep this facility going. Thank you. Hard work will pay off, and God sees all of it. Friends, this is instructive for us as we think about building a church building one day. We don't need a cathedral to be a gospel-preaching church. But we should not plan to build a shoddy, unattractive, and cheap church. We serve a generous God who is big and glorious and beautiful and awesome, and our facilities in one way or another should attract people not to a concert, but to a people who are amazed by this wonderful God. This is good wisdom to think about the idea of beauty and architecture and the caring for the property God gives you in your home life as well as in our church's life. But if you got your Bible Turn to Proverbs 26. If you get it open, turn to Proverbs 26. This will be the last proverb we look at. Proverbs 26. I want you to look at verses 13 to 16. Proverbs 26, 13 to 16. The sluggard says, There is a lion in the road, there is a lion in the streets. As a door turns on its hinges, so does a sluggard on his bed. The sluggard buries his hand in the dish. It wears him out to bring it back to his mouth. Verse 16, guys, the sluggard is wiser in his own eyes than seven men who can answer sensibly. Yes, the sluggard is excuse-ridden. Yes, he's unmotivated to get up and get going. Yes, he's pathetic. He's lethargic. But friends, the ultimate reason a sluggard is a sluggard is because he is self deceived. He thinks himself wiser in his own eyes than seven wise men put together. Friends, laziness 
at its root is a spiritual issue, not a personality flaw. Laziness is not a small, insignificant, not that big of a deal kind of issue that we can just care nothing about. No, laziness, friends, is the combination of unbelief, selfishness, and greed that is resting heavily on a sinner's heart. What is laziness? Well, it's, it's when we make rest our God and work our enemy. Unbelief, it's the distrust of God's character, his promises, his authority. Selfishness, it's a preoccupation with one's own desires and needs and interests at the expense and neglect of others. Greed, it's the excessive craving of wanting more and more and more and more. It covets and yet it will not work to provide for himself. Friends, we know that laziness and slothfulness is not a personality tick, but it's a sin issue because Jesus said it was. Remember what Brad read earlier from Matthew chapter 25 from the parable of the talents? There were three servants. One got five talents, the other two, the other one. The one with the five doubled it. The one with two doubled it. The one with one buried it. If you read, if I read Matthew 25 to simply say, this is a parable that Jesus says, work hard, do better, and you'll just kind of scrape by as you get into glory. No, the point of the parable is not merely who works hard and who doesn't. The point of the parable is to show who knows Jesus and who does not. Those who know Jesus as a good and wonderful and trustworthy master and how good he's been to us to steward whatever lot, whatever talents, whatever life, whatever relationships he has given to us. Friends, whatever we've been given, five talents, two talents, or one talent, we have to answer this question. Do you view King Jesus as a good master? who can be trusted? Or do you view him as a harsh master that doesn't care about you? What we think about Jesus will determine what kind of stewardship we have. Friends, why should we as followers of Christ steward well what the master has given to us. Well, friends, because Jesus gives meaning and purpose, a transcendent purpose to our work. Jesus himself came to this earth to do work himself. His work secured our eternal rest. Jesus came to fulfill the work his father gave him to do. Jesus did not come to do everyone's wishes, Jesus did not come to answer everyone's request. He came most insignificantly, most importantly, to do what his father told him to do. And friends, he came to do the father's will and he finished that work. The fulfillment of God's law, he accomplished. The fulfillment of God's prophecies, he accomplished. The payment for sin that would appease the wrath of God towards sinners like us to give us access to this good God. Friends, in John 19, 30, what did Jesus say? To tell us, it is finished. What was finished? The work 
of redemption Jesus came to accomplish. Jesus' work on the cross, his resurrection from the dead for sinners like us, friends, secures our rest and gives meaning to our work. To my non-Christian friend, there's only one person's work in this life that can make you right with God. And that is the work of Jesus Christ and him alone. No amount of hard work, wise planning, successful careers, or climbing a corporate ladder can accomplish the greatest work the universe has ever seen because that work exclusively belongs to King Jesus. What did we sing earlier, Matt? All my boast is in Jesus. All my hope is is his love. I will glory forever in what the cross has done. Friends, if we lack joy in our work, in our service, we have to have a more sustaining fuel in the tank. Our joy in the Lord, our motivation to work hard, doesn't come from us. It comes outside of us by beholding the works of God done all around us and in us. You see, friends, Matthew 25, the slothful servant, Jesus rebuked as a wicked, lazy sluggard because he did not trust in the goodness of the master. He didn't know him. Friends, that's because laziness at its root is a heart issue. It's a sin that sleeps heavily on our hearts. And Jesus is the only one who can wake us up from our stupor and slumber. Friends, our work ethics, whether we are paid or not, if we're going to follow King Jesus, we have to understand what makes anything we do in this life matter. It's a really good question. I hope you're taking notes. Let me offer six reasons. Six reasons why our work ethics matter. Number one, our work ethics will reveal what we believe about God and his creation. Our work ethics will reveal what we believe about God and his creation. Friends, simply put, God made work. It's not the devil's labors. It sometimes might feel that way. But God's the one who ordained it. He created the world. In chapter 1 of Genesis 1, he created it. Guess what he did in chapter 1? He created man and woman in his image, in his likeness. They are to be fruitful and multiply and have what? Dominion over the earth. Genesis chapter 2, no sin and evil in the world. He put Adam in the garden to work it and keep it. Those words are not just raking soil, but in Hebrew, they talked about serving and protecting the tabernacle, just like the Levitical priest did. In other words, Adam's work was also an expression of worship to his maker. And that was in a pre-fall state. Then in Genesis 3, sin enters the world, right? It enters the world and it distorts why we're here. But listen, Sin did not diminish the dignity of work. It just frustrated it and made it difficult. Friends, our work on earth is not a necessary evil. That's worldly. Our work 
is a part of our creation mandate. Our work doesn't need to be removed from our life. It needs to be redeemed and transformed in our life. Martin Luther once said, the Christian shoemaker does his duty not by putting little crosses on the shoes, but by making good shoes because God is interested in good craftsmanship. Number two, our work ethics will tell us what we believe about taking personal responsibility for ourselves and others who depend on us. Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy 5.8, but if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Or think of the virtuous woman in Proverbs 31. Notice what it says in Proverbs 31.27. She looks well to the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. A good biblical work ethic aims to become less dependent on the generosity of others and to take care of one's own needs. Number three, our work ethics will tell us what we believe about servanthood and loving our neighbor. Our work ethics will tell us what we believe about servanthood and loving our neighbor. Isn't this what Jesus' whole ministry embodied? He said, if the greatest among you, you must be your servant. A good biblical work ethic aims to work in part to bless others, to meet the needs of others, to share generously from the labors God has given you to bless those in need. And the Bible is replete with that command. Number four, our work ethics tell us what we believe about our stewardship from God, our stewardship from God. Remember, stewardship is simply acknowledging God owns everything and we are managers of whatever God entrusts to us. Friends, let me say something that I think is said so often in Christian circles, but I just want to punch this, I think, uh, burdensome pinata that gets thrown around as Christian, but it's not carefully defined. Have you ever heard someone say, I just need better work-life balance? Maybe you've said it. Maybe you've heard it in a board meeting, read it in a book. Well, as a Christian, you want to evaluate stuff like that with the Bible. Friends, when we read Matthew 25, we read throughout all of the New Testament, what God requires of stewards is not a perfectly balanced life. What God requires of stewards is faithfulness. You see, the work-life balance is really a myth. The Bible doesn't have a perfect balance, like this arbitrary seesaw. Well, if I do this, it'll be like this. And if I do this and put it... Who determines the seesaw? You'll never be there. The goal is not balance. The goal is faithfulness. Proverbs 14.4, where there are no oxen, the manger is clean, but abundant crops comes by the strength of an ox. A well-ordered and tidy life and a well-ordered and tidy house aren't always saying the same thing. They could be saying different messages depending on the reasons and the person. A tidy house can mean you're clean and organized, but a tidy house can also mean you're a loner and no one's ever there but you. Things like hospitality, children, fellowship, Bible studies, construction, remodeling, those are going to make a mess, not to mention a dog. But that mess can actually be worth it if serving others and facilitating ministry and productivity is going on. Derek Kidner comments on that proverb and says, Orderliness can reach the point of sterility. 
this proverb is a plea, the readiness to accept upheaval and the mess to clear up as the price of growth. Friends, it is required of stewards, 1 Corinthians 4.2, that they be found faithful, not balanced. Pray for wisdom of what that looks like for your life. Reason number five, our work ethics will tell us what we believe about the Great Commission and Christ Church. Romans 12.11 is a key text I want you to think about this week. Romans 12.11 says this, Do not be slothful in zeal, but be fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. An idle, sluggish, lazy church member only weakens the body. It perpetuates muscle atrophy in the life of his church. The command to not be slothful in zeal doesn't mean we don't have hard days. The command is connecting Matthew 25. If we're lacking motivation, we're lacking zeal, get your eyes off yourself, get your eyes off the labor, get your eyes back on Jesus. Friends, when our eyes are on Jesus, the motivation comes back. That means whether we are preaching a sermon, teaching a Bible study, greeting members and guests as they walk in, preparing the elements for the Lord's Supper and passing them out, leading in song, playing an instrument, sharing the gospel, monitoring the soundboard, leading in prayer, reading scripture publicly, serving in children's ministry, getting to know teenagers in our church, visiting members in their home, caring for the sick, feeding the poor, showing hospitality, playing with kids, cleaning toilets, vacuuming floors, moving chairs and pews, baking cupcakes, setting up for events, counseling a brother or sister in need, supporting missionaries, going to the mission field, writing teaching curriculum, putting together care packages, organizing the church budget, organizing the church's minutes, or giving money to the building fund. Friends, in everything we do in the name of Christ, it should be done enthusiastically, fervently, with excitement. We have a passionate, praiseworthy, and precious Savior. One of the most attractive witnesses of a church is a people who hasn't gotten over their salvation. And it shows. I remember when I got engaged to Julie. My coworker at our wedding on video had one thing to say. Blake, I've never seen anybody in my life with a smile like you cleaning a toilet. It was when I met Julie that even cleaning a toilet was fun to do because she was on my mind. I'm getting married. I'll clean that toilet. Well, friends, I love my wife, and she loves me, but Jesus loves me a whole lot more. And Jesus loves you a whole lot more. Whatever we do, we should do it enthusiastically. We should do it energetically. We should do it with joy and zeal because we serve a master who's worthy. Number six, our work ethics will tell us what we believe about our salvation in Christ 
in his response or our response to his grace. Friends, there are so many different ways that we can be lazy and not know it. We can waste time playing instead of being productive at work, procrastinate instead of planning well. We depend too much on the generosity of others. We wait for others to do the work instead of taking initiative. We say yes to everything and overcommit and not knowing when to say no and when to say yes. Kevin DeYoung says a schedule is a way to lock in where you're going to say no. Number six, we don't delegate to others when we should and don't spend time doing the things we're good at. And seven, we have a distorted view of work and rest. Lazy people make rest their God and work their enemy. But the reward for hard work that is well done is enjoyable rest without regret. Taking a nap can be done to the glory of God. Taking vacation can be done to the glory of God. Taking a sabbatical can be done to the glory of God. Enjoying recreation or a hobby can be done to the glory of God. Retiring from normal employment can be done to the glory of God. Can I get an amen? Retire, folks. Roy, come on, say something. There we go. That's your part of the sermon. You say, Brother Blake, I'm struggling with laziness. What do I do? Re-listen to the sermon. Recently, I had a man text me out of conviction of being lazy. He said this, quote, In business and in my personal life, I have been by myself in planning creating vision and making goals all by myself. It's been a long and lonely journey. I would encourage anyone that wants to own their own business or start a diet or walk with the Lord to never do it alone. My response back to him was this, amen. None of us can be a Lone Ranger Christian. Ecclesiastes 4, 9, and 10, two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow, but woe to him who is alone when he falls and has another to lift him up. Maybe you're here today and you say, well, Blake, I just don't have enough time. I'm just so busy. I'm just always behind. Stuart Scott said, we have enough time to do what God wants us to do. He's prepared good works for us to walk in. The problem with us is that our priorities are often out of whack. We say no when we should say yes. We say yes when we should say no. And we get ourselves in a trap. Friends, we need wisdom in that. Surround yourself with people who look like and talk like and work like that ant. Brothers and sisters, God uses our work at home, at church, and in our jobs in ways we may not fully understand to make us more like Jesus. The worth or value of our work is less in how much money we make and what we do and more in who we work for, namely King Jesus. Colossians 3.23, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. He's worthy. The question is this, does our stewardship and our work ethics Show that. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come before you now and we ask that you would search our hearts for any slothful, sluggardly-like attitudes in our hearts or in our work ethics and show us the better way. Surround us with these ant-like people that can help us be wise in our work, be diligent in our work, 
to be faithful stewards in the work you've entrusted to us. Father, we pray you would continue to work in us as a church body, that we would help one another serve you enthusiastically with the strength you supply. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.